Lord, that song reminds me of the scripture, what is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, you are more than mindful of us. You sent your son not to condemn us, not to sit next to us and remind us of our past, not to tell us to do better, be better, but you sent your son to die for me. Father, I know me. And yet you sent him to die for me and for us. Let that truth reign. Let that truth reign down on us. May your mercy and your grace and your comfort and your provision and your love rain down on us here today. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Michael Dolan. Yes, thank you. Well, good morning, Trinity. Good morning. A special welcome to anybody who is joining us for the first or second time. I mean, we're glad everybody else is here too, but like a special welcome to you guys that are here. My name is David. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. We are in our uh, sermon series titled Extraordinary, where we are going through the Bible and we are taking a look at uh, biblical characters and taking a look really how our extraordinary God does extraordinary things with very ordinary people. In week one, we studied the story of Ruth. In week two, we studied the story of Gideon. And last week, Pastor Kirk showed us how God worked through the life of Rahab to deliver the city of Jericho to the Israelites. And this week, we're going to study the story of a very well-known Old Testament figure named Joseph. This story in the book of Genesis is the longest narrative in the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible. And so we have some ground to cover today. Buckle up. We will move quickly. But the real point of this sermon series, and therefore this sermon, is not just to show how God uses ordinary people for extraordinary purposes, but to inspire and encourage one another that the same God that used Joseph for incredible things is the same God that wants to use you and me for the same. We're going to cover Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 45. So obviously there's going to be a bunch of stuff in there that I'm going to have to summarize. But as we go through, I want us to see four movements in the life of Joseph. In chapter 37, from beloved to betrayed. In chapter 39, from prosperous to prison. In chapters 40 and 41, from forgotten to favored. And in chapters 42 to 45, from rejected to redeemer. And as we go, I'm going to draw out some some points that Scripture has for us, but there's two complementary themes that are going to rise to the surface and emerge that I really want us to all leave here with. We will start on page 31. Before we dig in, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we have much to go through today, and, and, and so I I beg you for your Holy Spirit to fill this place and be the teacher today. 
to show us what we can't see, to teach us what we don't know, to tell us what we can't hear, and ultimately, not just to inform us, but to transform us and make us what we are not. Not that our name is great or our kingdom moves forward, but that your kingdom moves forward and your name is made great here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, some quick background to, to orient us within this biblical narrative. Remember, the Bible begins in the beginning, right? The creation narrative, creation of the universe and everything in it, including man and woman. And then we have the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And so far, we're three pages into the Bible. God pronounces judgment on man and woman and on the earth and everything in it, but also on Satan. And he promises to deliver the one who would crush the head of the serpent, of Satan. What we then have in the, in the Bible, in the biblical narrative, is chapter after chapter and book after book of God working through history to deliver Jesus, the promised seed, the promised Savior, from all the way back in Genesis. Joseph does not exist outside of that march through history. He exists within it, and so do we. So where does Joseph come from? Joseph's father is Jacob. Joseph's grandfather is Isaac, which makes his great-grandfather Abraham. Joseph has 11 brothers. The 12 of them later on become the basis, if you will, for the 12 tribes of Israel as they settle the promised land. And it's an important detail to note that Jacob has 12 brothers, I'm sorry, Jacob has 12 sons with four wives. It's a little bit of a crazy story. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 30. But Joseph and Benjamin were born by the love of Jacob's life, Rachel. Rachel passed away when Joseph was younger. And so that undoubtedly would form a strong bond between Jacob and Joseph and Benjamin. That strong bond wouldn't be enjoyed with the 10 other brothers, just by definition of that. And to make the bond between Jacob and Joseph even tighter, God blessed Rachel and Jacob when they were barren, when they couldn't conceive, with Joseph. So he was the son of a promise, the miracle child, if you will. And so that strengthened the bond between Jacob and Joseph even more, which is why almost immediately in chapter 37 in Genesis, we read, Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. Now Jacob, Israel, same person, too much to get into right now, but God changed Jacob's name. I'm going to just refer to him as Jacob throughout this. But the point of that is that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. So much so that Jacob gave Joseph an ornate robe. Yes, we've arrived at the Technicolor dream coat. But this wasn't a coat, this was more of a robe or a tunic that would go over the head, down over the shoulders, down to the ankles. And this tunic would have 
colors at the edges of it and throughout and on the fringes of it. And it would have been worn by nobility because back in those days, and even now, nobility didn't do manual labor. No wonder why his brothers despised him. Joseph is the beloved son adorned in royalty while his brothers are out working in the fields and with the flocks. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And if that wasn't enough, Joseph then has a dream, but not just any dream. This dream had them all out working in the fields when suddenly Joseph's sheave of grain stands tall and proud and his brother's sheaves of grain bow down to it. And if that wasn't enough, Joseph has another dream about the sun and the stars and exactly 11 stars bowing down to him. When he tells them, These dreams, his brothers react exactly as probably I would react. Do you intend to reign over us, they say? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and what he had said. Now, the Hebrew word there for hate translates better to insane with rage. And when you enter that territory, you do dangerous things. And so the beloved becomes the betrayed. One day Jacob sends his son Joseph to gather a report on his brothers. And when the brothers see Joseph coming, they quickly devise a scheme to kill him. But realizing that killing him doesn't profit any, they decide instead to sell him to a group of Ishmaelites who are traveling through on their way to Egypt. But people don't just up and disappear. And so the plot has to thicken. Verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, this is the part of the story where if we were Joseph, every single one of us would cry out, where are you, God? And you know what? That's fair. God in his grace can handle that. But we do well to remember that a delay in mercy does not equal a denial of prayer. So where was God? Last verse. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Potiphar's officials, the captain of the guard. Now, I want to be really careful how I say this because I, the danger is that I sound removed. And many of you know that our family is grieving the loss of my mother-in-law, of Ashley's mom. And I know many of you are still grieving hardship and loss. But... When the trials of your life reach their darkest is when God's grip on you, his love of you, and his fight for you 
reaches their peak. When it's the darkest, God's grip on you, his love of you, and his fight for you reaches its peak. Our God is not only there, but he is so powerful and so loving that he's working within our trials for our good and his glory. In other words, God is, he goes well beyond just getting us through. There is preparation for purpose, even in your pain. And so let's take a look at how him being sold into slavery and betrayed, let's take a look at how the betrayed brother becomes a prosperous and powerful servant to one of the leaders in Egypt. This is chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he had, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted him his care to everything that he owned. Now I can tell you without hesitation that if this was my story, I would tell you right at this point that this was the Lord giving me what I deserved for being betrayed by my brothers. This is the payoff, right, from the Lord. But how did Joseph look at this? Was this his prosperity and his power? No. We're going to see that he handles this with complete integrity, total loyalty, and stewardship. Now, here is where I resonate the most with Joseph. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. (laughs) Seeing who's paying attention out there. Now, so desirable was Joseph that Potiphar's wife just had to have him. So she throws herself at Joseph. But listen to Joseph's response. Verse 9. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing in sin against God? How was his heart calibrated? Who was on his mind? God. Joseph says no. She can't handle it. Frames him, tells Potiphar that Joseph made the advance. Potiphar flips out. Verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. But this was the payoff. This was, this was what he deserved, right? From beloved to betrayed. Then Joseph gets his power, promotion, prosperity, authority, status. He resisted temptation. He did everything right. Prison? And not just any prison. That detail about the king's prisoners, that tells us this is a whole. Where are you, God? Last three verses. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of everything. 
And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now what hit me this week at this point in Joseph's story is both an invitation and a challenge. An invitation to purpose and a challenge of availability. Isn't it interesting that With all of this wild ride that we've read, we haven't heard one emotion from Joseph. Nothing, not one. Now, I'm not saying he's happy with everything that's going on. But the story here, what's emerging here, is not about how Joseph felt. It's God's desire to use Joseph and Joseph's availability to be used by God. Those are the two themes. God's desire to use Joseph and Joseph's availability to be used by God. Beloved son, betrayed brother, prosperous servant, then imprisoned. Now let's go through these next two movements and see God at work. We see Joseph now forgotten and then favored. In chapter 40, Joseph is in prison still, and while he's there, he's joined by Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker. These two, while in prison, have dreams, and Joseph interprets these dreams, but before he does, he says, do not interpretations belong to God, right? He's starting with God. The cupbearer's dream, Joseph interprets, is one of restoration back into service in the will of Pharaoh. The chief baker's dream, not so much. Joseph has the privilege of telling the baker that in three days, Pharaoh will behead him and then impale his body. How do you recover from that? Like, want to play cards? Like, what do you say in prison, right? So Joseph asked the chief cupbearer, right? Hey, everything's going to go well with you. In three days from now, when you get out of prison, remember me. Put in a good word with Pharaoh. Three days. Three days later, history proves Joseph's interpretations correct. The interpretations that the Lord gave to him. The cupbearer is restored. The baker is impaled. And having just lived this, not just hear about it, but live it, surely the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Three days have passed. Verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Next verse. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Anybody in here waited a long time for God's mercy to come through? Anybody in here been tempted to give up? I know I have. But remember, a delay in mercy is not a denial of prayer. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the most powerful country, has two dreams which trouble him, in which no one in all of his kingdom can interpret. What have we learned about being used by God? Is it about status 
or popularity or money or fame or knowledge or a squeaky clean past. It's about availability. Being open to hear God's voice and respond in obedience. And when all else failed, Pharaoh's cupbearer suddenly remembers Joseph, the one who interpreted dreams two years ago. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, listen, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Oh, Pharaoh, you have no idea how long I've waited for this shot. You see, my brothers were a hot mess and tried to kill me. Then they sold me. Then Potiphar's wife, oh, she crazy. She framed me. <laughs> then this dude forgets me. Me, 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 me. And that's what you would have said. And how do I know that's what you would have said? Because that's what I would have said. But what does Joseph say? Verse 16. I can't do it. But God will. God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. A listening ear, an obedient heart. With the inspiration of the Lord, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams which point to seven years of abundance and seven years of severe famine. So severe that the prior seven years of abundance will be forgotten. God gives Joseph, Joseph those interpretations for Pharaoh and he gives him the entire business plan to pull it off. Put someone in charge of the land of Egypt. Get some commissioners in line to aid in storing grain for the time, from the time of abundance for the time of famine. Hold the food in reserves. So much so that Pharaoh asks, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and people shouted before him, make way. Thus he was put in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Two years ago, forgotten. Two years later, second in command of the entire known world. And everything goes according to the revelation of God. Seven years of plenty in which Joseph did all that the Lord commanded so that when the seven years of famine hit, everyone in the land had to come to Joseph for provisions. Rich, poor, old, young, didn't matter. Across the land, everyone had to go to Joseph. Everyone including his brothers. Beloved, betrayed, prosperous, imprisoned, forgotten, favored above all. And now the one whom they rejected has the opportunity for ultimate revenge 
or absolute redemption. The famine hits the entire land, chapter 42, verse 1. And when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. The brothers travel to Egypt to see this man who now controls their destiny 22 years after they sold him into slavery. And because of the passage of time, the brothers do not recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. Now there is this incredible interplay that goes on between Joseph and his brothers, which involves even Jacob. And when Joseph finally can't take it anymore, he can no longer stand the chasm that exists between him and his brothers. Chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. When does Joseph, when do we finally see emotion from him? In front of his brothers. In front of his brothers. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Imagine that. Terrified. Like the end of a movie playing in your head. What will become of us now? Revenge or redemption? Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here. But God, he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph said. God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You didn't send me here. God did. He sent me here to save you. That is an answer 22 years in the making. Why am I in the pit? Why am I sold into slavery? Why am I head of Potiphar's household only to be falsely accused, in prison, forgotten, in front of Pharaoh, and now premier of all the world? God did all of that so I could save you. And even though he couldn't have known it each step of the way, Joseph's spiritual ears were opened and his heart was obedient to the call of God. He was available for use by the Lord not focused on himself, which leads to retribution and revenge, but focused on God, which leads to reconciliation and redemption. But as always, there's one more thing. Remember about 20 minutes ago when I said that Joseph's story happens 
within the context of the overall biblical narrative of God's march throughout history to bring about Jesus and our story rests within the same. We covered every chapter from 37 to 45 except one. Chapter 38. After Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers in chapter 37, the narrative literally takes this sharp left turn with a very dark story about one of Joseph's brothers, Judah. And this story seems so out of place unless you see it within the biblical context. In chapter 38, Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law after his son dies. He sleeps with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking that she is a prostitute. I mean, this is out of bounds on a whole different level. Tamar gets pregnant and gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. And the next verse takes us back to Joseph. So why is chapter 38 in the Bible? Because the story of Joseph isn't about Joseph. From Abraham came Isaac, Isaac came Jacob, Jacob came 12 sons, one of them Judah. From Judah and Tamar came Perez, from Perez eventually came Boaz, from Ruth and Boaz eventually came King David, and 26 generations later came Jesus. That is to say that God saved Joseph from the pit to ultimately deliver him to Egypt so that he could save and redeem Judah so he could ultimately deliver Jesus to save and redeem you and me. This story is all about Jesus. Jesus who was beloved and then betrayed. Jesus who was sold for a handful of silver. Jesus who was falsely accused yet obedient to the will of the Father. Jesus who was led like a lamb to the slaughter yet did not open his mouth. Jesus who went down into the pit. Jesus who was then highly exalted among all. God might have used Joseph to save hundreds of thousands from starvation, but Jesus will earn and give salvation to billions. It is Jesus who mankind looked upon and despised but who was sent so that we might have life and not death. It is Jesus who we now must go to for our redemption. And when we do, we are covered not in a tunic of many colors, but in a robe of restoration. Look, God used Joseph ultimately for one reason, to bring about Jesus to earth. And guess what God wants to use each one of us for? He wants to use each of us to bring about Jesus in his kingdom here on earth. This story is not about capability. Not once do we hear about how educated Joseph was or how smart he was or how good of a speaker he was. The only time we really hear something about Joseph is how good looking he is and it gets him thrown in jail. The question is not about if God can and will use you. The question is, are you available to be used? Are your ears open to his voice? And will you respond in obedience? We know Jesus is Lord and Savior and healer and redeemer. But do we know him as composer and conductor. Whether we're in the pit or in the palace, when Jesus directs the music of our life, it becomes a symphony of praise to our Heavenly Father.
We are equipped not with a storehouse full of grain, but with a spirit full of the gospel in your family, in your neighborhood, in your work, in your school is full of starving souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good, good Father. This story resonates so loudly, not because Joseph isn't this model of perfection. He isn't this super capable person that earned a spot on your team. This story is all about you and how you meet us in the pit, how you meet us in the palace, how you want to use every single one of us, whether we are five or 95 and everything in between. You have a plan and a purpose for every one of our lives. And I thank you that it is not dependent on us being capable, but on you and your power. And all you ask of us is to be available. So Father, would you open up our ears to hear your voice and give us the courage and the conviction to walk in obedience that Jesus would be spread here on earth as it is in heaven. In his name we pray, amen.